Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. This episode of the Yankees Magazine Podcast is brought to you by MLB at Bat. Yankees baseball is always live with MLB at Bat. Follow the action with tracking and video highlights along with up-to-the-moment stats, standings, breaking news, and more. Download MLB at Bat today in the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's your number one app for Yankees baseball. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yankees Magazine Podcast. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the Deputy Editor for Yankees Magazine. With me right now, we have Nathan Makaborski, our Executive Editor. Hello, everybody. Hello, Nathan. We are going to be joined a little later by the Senior Museum Curator for the New York Yankees, Brian Richards. He's going to talk to us about Thurman Munson as we approach the 40th anniversary of his tragic passing. But, Nate, before we do that, let's talk about a special weekend that you're coming off You had a really great trip with some baseball legends, Yankees legends, getting to see some new Yankees legends inducted in Cooperstown. What was that experience like for you? Oh, man. Every trip to Cooperstown is really special, no matter when it is. This is the second time I've been up for an induction. I guess it was actually 10 years ago. I was writing about Joe Gordon when he went into the Hall of Fame. It was the year that Ricky Henderson went in as well. So it had been a while since I had been up there with 50,000 plus other people at the same time in the little village of Cooperstown. But it was great. I mean, that the whole staff up there at the Hall of Fame does such an impressive job of just making it. Everything is so smoothly run. You never feel like it's too crazy or too crowded and it was a little hot out there but it was a beautiful weekend everything about it was awesome and then you know to have two Yankees going in Mike Mussina and Mariano Rivera it was really special you know we had Al Sanasiri our editor-in-chief and I were both up there you know we had an opportunity to be around those guys a lot and get a good sense of how much they enjoyed it. I mean, you really, you couldn't wipe the smile off either guy's face all weekend long. Al is writing the cover story for our August issue about Mariano's induction, and I wrote the feature about Mike Mussina going in. So yeah, it was great. It's so interesting to hear you talk about it this way. I'm a big crowd anxiety type guy, and (laughs) and to me, you know, while Cooper sounds one of my favorite places on the planet, I've always just been like, stay away during induction weekend and everything (laughs) like that. But you're making it seem like it's not so rough, actually. How much do you feel the crazy crowds when you're there this time of year? 
I mean, it's certainly different than when I go up in January to do research and I'm one of like five people in town. <laughs> but, you know, everybody's just there for such a good cause and a good reason. You know, it's all diehard fans of certain players who are there to support their guys and show their love for their guys. It's a good vibe up there the, the entire weekend. I never sat in traffic once. I never waited for a table once. Everybody moves about at a good pace, and it's just, it never feels overwhelming. <laughs> That's the opposite of what I expected. That's so funny. Well, look, I mean, this was the 80th induction ceremony, so you would hope by now that they've kind of worked out any kinks. <laughs> um, but it, no, it was great. Musina went first among the uh, the six speeches on induction day and mariano naturally closed it out i stepped away for a little bit in during the the middle ones to you know get some work done grab a bite to eat and not sit in the blazing hot sun for the entire three hours or whatever it was it was just great you know it was i always come away from there thinking a what a beautiful area this is like just the the streets and the buildings and the lake it's just so picturesque and B, just, you know, how great it is to be around so many people who, like myself, just love baseball. That comes through when you're there, like you said, in the in the dead of winter doing work. I can't even imagine what it's like during induction weekend when, you know, every turn it's like, oh, there's the best pitcher ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, your story that you wrote about Musina, it, it's obviously very different having him up there than the way it is with Mo, you know, Mo got onto the ballot and it was a question is he like you know gonna get 99% or 100% and obviously he got 100 Messina had to wait a little longer he was a guy who his career had a lot of those wait a little bit and fall just shorts and what have you Mm -hmm. I really liked the way he came across in your story and I think I don't know what your experience is necessarily that was not the way he came across in my experiences interviewing him over his career it seemed like I don't know if he was putting on a, a, a nice show for the for the weekend there, or if he just, you know, if his perspective of things has changed a lot over the course of the year since it, he was a very difficult interview. Not, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he challenged you and he, right. you know, he would push back on you. And your story is him making jokes and laughing and being kind of like, you know, the party starter. You're absolutely right, John. I mean, thinking back to him, I didn't really get a chance to interview him, I don't think, uh, when he was a player. But... Yeah, he always had that sort of reputation as like he could be difficult. He could be combative with reporters and you didn't see him joking around too much or at all, really. He was just a very business-like stud pitcher. I mean, he was dependable and reliable and made big starts and came up big in the postseason. But yeah, he wasn't the the life of the party necessarily. But this weekend, you saw a totally different side of him. Every time I was around him, it was sneaking in little one-liners that would just make you chuckle and make you laugh or make you smile. Ragging on Mariano a little bit, going back and forth with him. And, you know, those two guys, I guess I I didn't really realize how how close they were. Musina pitched eight years in New York. So many of his games and his wins here were closed out by Mariano. If you look at his postseason games, almost every game that Musina pitched in the postseason for the Yankees. Mariano pitched later on in that same game. They had a really good relationship all all throughout uh, Mike's career here. You know, they spent a lot of time in the outfield together, shagging fly balls and just talking and stuff. And, you know, you got a chance to see that. You know, now Musina's a, a little older. He's 50. He's got the gray goatee. He lives back in his hometown where he coaches high school basketball. Like, the pressure of being a big league pitcher is gone. 
So he's a lot more chill. He's a lot more jovial. He just, he had us laughing the whole, <laughs> the whole weekend, which going into the weekend, I was not expecting from Mike Mussina. There's one Hall of Fame, obviously. It doesn't matter whether you were first ballot or put in by a veterans committee or anything like that. You're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. And yet, it doesn't matter how you get there. There are sometimes I wonder if you were getting married in a side room next to like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle at the same time. You know, <laughs> when you're Mike Messina and you're going in there on Mariana Rivera's day mm-hmm. in a sense, or maybe even Messina might not be the best example, maybe like Lee Smith going in there on Mariana Rivera's day. Did you get the sense at any point as you're looking at that dais of six names, obviously five players and Roy Halladay's widow, did you get the sense that they were maybe approaching their careers and their lives and their place in the game differently? Or was there just this feeling, especially as they're up there among all the Hall of Famers that you are in your Hall of Famer case closed? I think more the latter. I think, you know, I was kind of looking for that going up there. I was like, maybe this ends up being the angle of my story is that here's a guy who in a do or die playoff game in 2001 against the A's, the Yankees are down 0-2 in a best of five series, goes out and shoves seven scoreless, but it's the game remembered for Jeter's flip play. And there's so many moments kind of like that throughout Aaron his career. Boone. Right. You know, he has the the first relief appearance of his life in the game seven of the 2003 ALCS, and people talk about Aaron Boone's home run. So there are all these kind of moments where he's doing these great things, but still being overshadowed. And I thought maybe that with uh, Mariano going in the same weekend, uh, it's another one of those instances, but that wasn't the the sense I got. He was grateful to the writers for giving him enough votes the first time he was on the ballot to to stay on the ballot. And then here, you know, he kind of steadily got more and more votes. And then now on a sixth try, he got in and he was just thankful and reflective of his journey and glad to be around Rivera. You know, every time that those two guys were in the same room, they were like arm in arm practically. I thought that was really cool to see. I thought about this a lot a few years ago when I was writing about Tim Raines. When you're Mariano Rivera, when you get in with 100% of the vote, yeah, you're grateful for every single one of those writers who voted you in. But obviously the message you take from that is I'm a Hall of Famer and everyone, (laughs) you know. When you're Tim Raines and every year more and more people are getting convinced, or when you're Mike Messina, it must feel so different in terms of the appreciation you feel for the writers who are giving you that consideration and obviously thinking about you and not just going by what they did last year or anything like that, but considering your career in a different way. It must be so rewarding to watch that number go up every year. And obviously, once it gets to that 75 mark, you know, just I'm sure it's a relief and I'm sure it's kind of a crazy feeling. But also, you know, like I said, this wasn't a fait accompli. This was people saying, I want to sit down and figure out if this guy's a Hall of Famer and saying yes. No one had to have that conversation about Mariana Rivera. No. And I think that we've talked about this, I think, on the podcast before and and offline. We've talked about it, too. The way the game is kind of changing and evolving. And look, the Yankees are deploying an opener this year to great success. So in the way that the game is evolving, which obviously the writers are are keen to as well, they look at Mike Mussina's numbers through that prism as well. And I think they see a pitcher whose accomplishments maybe, I don't know that we're going to see very many other pitchers reach those kind of numbers anymore. I mean, 270 wins is an awful lot. And with the emphasis on bullpens and openers, like I said, I mean, it's going to be really hard 
for another pitcher to come up and reach those kind of numbers. And, you know, I think a lot of weight was given to the fact that he spent his entire career in the American League East, you know, pitching so many games, first against the Yankees and, uh, of course, against the Red Sox so many times throughout his entire career. So, yeah, I think there's an even greater appreciation for Mike Mussina now than than when he retired. You know, we had a game last week, probably going to be remembered as the game of the season. And there were four blown saves in that game. I, I said at the time, I remember in 2013, that I thought Yankees fans were going to really struggle with losing Mariano Rivera. And as it turned out, credit to Brian Cashman, he did a good job of building the world's best bullpen, essentially, over the last few years. And it's not to say that Mariano Rivera never blew saves, or even never blew saves in very big moments. But man, every single time you see one of these things, you just remember just how reliable Rivera was for so many years and it's just impossible to imagine how someone like that happens when you are around him but also around his fans in cooperstown do you think people perceive him as great baseball player or just some sort of untouchable not understandable entity I, I don't know. That's a hard one. You know, he, he carries himself with such dignity and, and grace. But humility, just such but humility. But humility, yeah. And and he's really, you know, I, I think about the um, the night before the induction ceremony, the Yankees had rented out the Omegong Brewery up there and, and threw a party. And, Great work there, by the way. You have to imagine yeah. that they knew five years in advance that they would be able to have a party at five because i imagine that's the first thing you have to book up in cooperstown yeah. <laughs> and mariano walks in with his family well first enter sandman comes on over the speakers i'm like oh i didn't even click at first but then i look and you see mariano walk in with his family and everybody cheers for him but then you know he goes around he shakes everybody's hand and has a kind word for everybody and he's just a special guy i mean we're never gonna see another one like him the yankees have currently probably the best closer in baseball, uh, if not the best, one of the best in Araldis Chapman. And he's blown five saves so far this year. And, you know, you to do what Mariano did for as long as he did, it's, it's unfathomable. It, it really is. And so many people came out to support him up in Cooperstown. And you saw the, uh, you know, the Panamanian flags all over the place. And you saw the 42 jerseys all over the place. And you know, he delivered a wonderful speech, began by thanking God, of course, and then went right into thanking his family, had some really beautiful words for his wife and his kids. I felt fortunate to be there and to witness it. It's so interesting to me, too. I, I was around Mariano Rivera plenty in my career, but I didn't start at the Yankees until after his final year. I was here for Jeter's final year. And Jeter always, he was a little bit colder in some ways, but he was also just so good at the moment and so good at, you know, when he had to speak, you know, at the last game at the old stadium or when he had to speak after George Steinbrenner passed away. You know, he was so good at doing those things. He was such a great captain in a sense. The one thing that Mariano Rivera has right now that Jeter doesn't is Mariano Rivera has in retirement remained a Yankee. And obviously Derek Jeter, I thought it was great that he showed up for this mm -hmm. um, over the weekend, but he owns another team right now. Look, I'm looking ahead maybe too much and i'm assuming dark cheater gets in first pallet i think that's pretty safe i wonder how next year is going to compare to this year in that regard he's one of the most popular if not the most popular yankees of my lifetime you know i wonder what it's going to be like next year when he goes in and how it compares to mariana what do you think i think that next year is going to be crazy 
<laughs> I think because of Derek's roots here in this area, I mean, he was born in New Jersey, spent the first four or five years of his life here. And just in talking to people like casually, they're like, oh yeah, you know, I didn't get a chance to get up there this weekend, but I'm definitely going next year. Uh, I heard a lot of comments. I think I've had that conversation three times in the last few days, by the way. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are planning on being there to see Derek Jeter go into the Hall of Fame. This year was the second largest crowd for an induction weekend. I think the largest was when Cal Ripken and Tony Gwynn went in the same year. And I don't know that there's going to be another big name going in next year. So at least in my mind, I think it'll kind of be Jeter's weekend. I'd be surprised if even even though it's only one top level superstar going into the Hall of Fame, that if that weekend doesn't break the record, I, I'd be pretty surprised. He means so much to so many people, especially <laughs> so many people who live within like a few hour drive of Cooperstown that... It's going to be pretty wild next year. You and uh, Al both did such a great job of capturing this past Hall of Fame ceremony. I can't wait for fans to read it. Mark it down that I think we're going to be doing this again a year from now, and, <laughs> and that's wonderful. It's really a special thing for Yankees fans that while the team is doing so well on the field, you're also getting this opportunity to celebrate the not-so-distant past and look back at some of the greatest moments of you know our sports lifetimes, obviously. So make sure you check out our coverage of the 2019 Baseball Hall of Fame induction in the August issue. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to discuss another Yankees legend, much sadder story. We're going to bring in Brian Richards from the New York Yankees Museum to discuss Thurman Munson's legacy as we approach the 40th anniversary of his death. So stick around. Hi, this is Aaron Boone. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. The Yankees Magazine podcast is also brought to you by MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market regular season game live or on demand with MLB.tv. Your subscription includes MLB at Bat Premium, allowing you to stream live baseball on your favorite supported devices. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details. And welcome back to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. This is going to be a special segment we have here. We're bringing you into the New York Yankees Museum presented by Bank of America. With us right now, we have the Senior Museum Curator, Brian Richards. Welcome, Brian. Very good to be here, John. Thank you. We're grateful. We couldn't think of anyone better to help us talk about a big thing happening around the Yankees this week, which is, you know, sadly, the 40th anniversary of the tragic death of Thurman Munson. Yes. Brian, there's no one who has a better handle on the history of this team than you do in this building, at least. <laughs> well, thank you. I try my best. <laughs> you know, so, so Brian, you know, I, I had a strange experience of my own, I guess. You know, I went out to Canton and spent yeah. a lot of time with Diana Munson, who, sure. for the record, is the best. Oh, she's a wonderful lady, yes. It was a little bit hard for me. Not only was I not, you know, a Thurman Munson fan, per se, who got to enjoy his, I, I wasn't even born. Like sure. when he died, um, mm-hmm. it's a little bit difficult for me to understand all of the connection Yankees fans have with him. Right. You know, look, you weren't born either. Nate, what were you? I was uh, just a baby. I was a few months old yeah. when Thurman passed away. So obviously we have the three best people possible in here to talk about the legacy <laughs> of Thurman Munson. But, you know, Brian, like, look, this is Yankees history. It doesn't matter when yes. you were born. I mean, we can enjoy Babe Ruth history. We can, yes. you know mourn Thurman Munson but you know what in your mind is it why why do we see 15 jerseys 
everywhere still. Sure. Well, I think, first off, Thurman was the defining Yankees player of the 1970s. Uh, I don't think any other player had as much impact on the team within the decade. And, uh, you know, being that a, a dynasty was built, culminating in championships in 1977 and 78, uh, I think you could argue that Thurman was one of the most impact play, most imp- impactful players, I should say, in all of baseball for the decade. So he was this blue-collar, everyman hero. Uh, as you mentioned, going to Canton, I think you got a very good taste of the culture that he came from. Very much this blue-collar hero, uh, the tough-as-nails, knock-him-down, get-right-back-up kind of personality that so many people can relate to. And just being such a great all-around contributor to the team on his defense, his game-calling, clutch hitting, he was just somebody people could identify with and could appreciate in so many different ways. And I think, too, his tragic passing, that sort of enhances what made him so special. So I think 40 years later, it's, it's still very fitting and very appropriate that people are wearing those number 15 jerseys, whether they remember the contributions he made on the field or if they've just, as we did, grown up hearing stories about how significant and impactful and popular he really was. You spend a lot of time around fans in the museum and you get to see them kind of interact with Yankees history mm-hmm. very on a very close basis. What are the things you hear or see that surprise you when they're in front of, say, you know, Thurman's Locker or any exhibit you might have compared to, you know, when they're in front of Mickey or anything like that? With Munson especially, standing in front of his locker can be a very emotional experience for lots of people. I've seen many people, especially fans who grew up in the late 1960s, 1970s, uh, where the 1970s teams was kind of their era, if you will, as they were in their formative years, who have gotten very emotional in front of Munson's locker. People who you uh, not normally would uh, would think would get emotional or shed a tear, and standing in front of Thurman's locker in that most special of places has that impact on people. And even, too, what, what impresses me even more is where you have younger fans, fans who were born after Munson passed away, fans who maybe their parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles told them about Munson. They have learned who he was, why he was special, and they appreciate his contributions. So I've had fans who you know were born in the 1980s, even 1990s, stand in that same spot in front of Thurman's locker. And even though they don't personally remember him, they certainly appreciate who he was, and, and on occasion, they become emotional, too. It's much more than just a, a black-and-white photo. It's much more than just numbers on a page. With Thurman, there is still a very deep emotional connection four decades after his passing. Brian, you uh, re- referenced the, the culture that Thurman grew up in in Canton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And, John, when you were out there recently, what did you learn about Canton and where Thurman came from and sort of what sort of legacy is, is left there? You know, how, how does Canton remember Thurman Munson? Well, you know, one thing that was very easy to learn from everyone I spoke to, and I don't think this is unique to Canton. It maybe feels unique because of how much we love Thurman here. There's more than one Canton. It's such a football town and there's mm-hmm. such a football backing there that I found myself reaching out to. There's a number of football players who are from Canton, and one of them is Dan Deardorff, who's also in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which is in Canton. And, you know, Diana and Deardorff, they both describe this just wonderful upbringing, this, you know, close-knit family. And that was not how Thurman grew up. Thurman grew up with just a mean father, someone who really 
tried to make Thurman's death about him in just grotesque ways after the fact um, in a lot of newspaper stories and things like that. So the Canton I saw, it, it was hard because you can go looking and you can find markers. I mean, there's a Munson Street, which I mentioned in the story, Diana signed the papers to rename it Munson Street literally on the day he died. Thurman was going to go from the airport to go sign the papers himself. You know, there's Munson Street, which was on land that they owned. That kind of leads right into Sunset Hills Burial Park, where he's buried, and just this beautiful, remarkable tombstone to Thurman Munson, which, you know, the day we went there, it was kind of a gloomy whatever day, but just all kinds of things that have been left there recently that, you know, hadn't been weathered enough to make you think that they'd been there too long. So obviously it was a regular kind of progression of people coming through. There's Thurman Munson Stadium, which is not much to look at. There's no team that plays there right now. It's a football town. The first thing you see when you get in there is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, it's literally like your first sight on the highway. You drive a little bit longer and you get to this remarkable mausoleum for William McKinley. Thurman Munson, he's kind of more in the air there. And that sounds cheesy when I'm saying it, but it's just this sense that people have that why did this guy stay here? This was a horrible place for him and yet he stayed here. And I think that's what I was trying to get to the root of when I was writing this. What connected Thurman to this place? Why is Diana still in the house that he built? And when I say he built, I mean literally he picked out the stones for he There's a famous story that he was driving in New York, in New Jersey with Diana, and he saw this marvelous house and he like knocked on the door and was like, I promise you, I'm going to build this five states away, but I want to build this exact house. Can I have the plans? And literally, I mean, this was so important to him to create this home that was the opposite of what he had. And, you know, so now Diana can't leave it and the family is still there. And Mike has a bar there that's named Tugboats, which is, you know, and of Thurman's and all these things. And it's just, I think if you look from, you know, 30,000 feet, Canton is a football town. But if you get down there, you know, you can start seeing what the connections are to Munson still that are there. Brian, Diana comes back every year on Old Timers Day and always oh, yes. receives, you know, one of the warmest ovations of anybody. Could you just talk a little bit about your interactions with Diana and sort of what makes her such a special lady? Certainly. Uh, getting to know Diana has been uh, a pleasure. One of my greatest honors since having started working for the Yankees in 2008. She, I like to say, embodies his legacy, represents his legacy with so much dignity and so much class. I tell her every year when she comes, I make a point of saying to her that people don't just like Thurman, they love Thurman. They still do. That hasn't changed. And that's something that she always appreciates hearing. And that sentiment, I think, is absolutely true. For people who come in the museum wearing number 15 jerseys, for people who share a special memory of Thurman, for people who say that you know they were catchers as kids because of Thurman Munson, inspired by Thurman, that's very uplifting for her. So to be able to share those sentiments on other people's behalf with Diana is a beautiful thing. And she has come to the museum several times to visit Thurman's locker on Old Timers Day. Uh, one time she brought Ron Guidry along with her, which was an even more special experience. But when she stands there in front of that locker, that is an experience like none other, because obviously nobody had the connection with Thurman like Diana did. But one of the things she appreciates the most is when she sees fans wearing Thurman's number 15 jersey. Last year, she was in the museum and saw two fans wearing number 15 jerseys. They didn't see her. I assume they did not recognize her. 
And she walked up and, and said, excuse me, you, you don't know me, but I'm Thurman Munson's wife. Can I give you a hug? And this is the story that she told me over and over again. And mm-hmm. that her son, Mike, says, you know, mom, you're a stalker. She, ha- <laughs> she feels like In a she, good ha- way. <laughs> she has to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this is one thing that I, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. But one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, she's convinced that part of her job as Thurman Munson's wife is right. to do this, mm-hmm. that this is her responsibility, right. is to relive once a year mm-hmm. plus, really, sure. the worst day of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, to just and, and to go on the radio and listen to people cry as they tell the story of how they heard about Thurman Munson dying and mm-hmm. feeling that she's got to comfort them that if she sees a 15 jersey, like you said, she's going to go up and hug that person. Right. She says, that's the deal that you make. I don't necessarily believe that. I'm not sure why she agreed to be interviewed by me. Um, she never met me until I spent <laughs> you know, two hours talking to her. My, my sense, and I kind of kept making this point to her, is I think it's safe. I think that no one's forgetting Thurman at this point. Right. Her sense is my job is to make sure no one forgets Thurman. You're a historian. You're right. a baseball historian particularly. Yes. You know, why is she doing this? Does she have to do this? Well, it certainly is Diana's choice as far as how she wants to represent his legacy. But I I think by doing that, I think she very much keeps his memory alive. You know, I think... But uh, would it not be alive if she wasn't doing this? I think it would be, but I don't know that it would be quite so emotional and, and quite so tangible, if you will. And, of course, we're all speaking hypotheticals here, but, you know, I, I think uh, Thurman's death could potentially be more something that is is more matter-of-factual, something you read about in black-and-white photos and newspaper clippings and, you know, uh, something where his wife lives privately in Canton, Ohio, and that's the end of the story, one sentence at the end of the story. Whereas with Diana, it, it becomes something where it's okay to mourn Thurman. It's okay to talk through and work through that pain and those memories. Uh, I tell people all the time, don't necessarily mourn the death, celebrate the life that led up to it. There's a reason why you remember Thurman Munson. There's a reason why you loved him. There's a reason why that death had so much impact. I know I keep using that word impact, but I think that that is a a very appropriate word for Thurman, why it had so much impact on you as a fan, as a person. And I think Diana really makes it okay to have those feelings. She makes it okay to work through the the sadness, the grief, the shock that was there, but she makes it okay to remember Thurman and, and to smile and to show that, you know, she represents his life. She represents his values. She represents his character. You know, you make an interesting point when you talk about the fans coming in um, into the museum and everything like that, and that Diana comes into the museum as yes. well. Mm-hmm. You know, she told me she couldn't go into the clubhouse in the old stadium. She finally did it right before it closed, right before they tore it down. It was yes. the only time she could do it. She mm-hmm. said it was just too hard. Sure. You know, she makes the point that it's easier for her to come back now. Mm-hmm. She can get into an elevator at the new stadium and not have memories of getting into that elevator with Thurman because it's a different place. Right. She can go to the museum, as you said, and see the locker because right. it's not the same thing. I'm curious from your perspective. You started in 2008, you said? Yes, 2008. Mm -hmm. Were the plans already there at that point that the locker was coming into the museum? Yes, those plans were on the books before I started working with the Yankees. The general museum layout was planned, uh, where the exhibit cases, the baseball wall were going to be. And one of the elements that was incorporated from the very beginning before I became here, before I began working here, I should say, was to include Thurman Munson's locker within the museum. And immediately I felt that that was a very appropriate decision. I felt it was a great way for fans to be able to come and pay homage to this great Yankees hero and see one of the most 
special spots within the original Yankee Stadium, which I still think is one of the most special spots within the current stadium. So that locker was uh, uh, planned from day one to be in the museum, and there are absolutely no plans whatsoever to move it. It is staying permanent. Brian, Munson's locker is one of the permanent fixtures in the museum, as is the ball wall. But there's a lot of exhibits that kind of rotate in and out. You have new things every year. Uh, Have you ever had any additional Munson exhibits in the museum? And what sort of items did you have on display for the fans to see there? Yes, we absolutely have. Last year in 2018, we had a display uh, dedicated completely to Thurman Munson on display. Had some great, very exciting pieces in there. We had Thurman's 1976 American League MVP award plaque. We had his 1970 American League Rookie of the Year award plaque as well. One of his uniform jerseys from the 1979 season a pair of shin guards that he wore. We even had the baseball that he signed from his first major league hit in 1969 on display. So uh, as you mentioned, we do rotate our exhibits every year, every two years or so, and uh, we do keep several pieces of Thurman's permanently on display inside his locker. Uh, We have one of his 1970 home uniforms, a 1976 bat from his MVP season, and uh, the shin guards that I mentioned, which are one of my favorite pieces, we've actually moved over, and they are now on display within the Munson locker itself. That was a question I was going to ask, actually. We have a cool part of the story, which is pictures of the locker through the years, Mm -hmm. and despite the fact that it was an open, empty... I called in the story an unmonument also. It did actually change through the years a little bit. You can see like little places that were touched up in there. How do you decide, you know, now what part of that space you're allowed to touch and what part of it is just this has to be, you know, remain in glass, right. totally said it never changed. Because it doesn't look, sure. it's not his locker anymore, despite right. whatever we want to say about it. It mm-hmm. has changed. Right. Is it now frozen in time though, or can things evolve still? I think there is a a slight degree of flexibility, but it has to be within certain parameters and it has to be within good taste. This year, for example, I I installed one of his catcher's mitts from about 1973. And the shin guards that I mentioned, which he actually did autograph both of them, we put those in there as well. I would not want to put any additional pieces in there besides those and the jersey and bat and cap that I mentioned. Because you don't want to clutter it, you don't want to make it an overcrowded tribute to somebody so the pieces that do go in there have to be selected with with very good taste and i can say this i usually do open the months locker once per year uh to go inside to to do a little bit of cleaning to uh, inspect and photograph the pieces that are displayed in there but when i do go into that locker i always first off take my shoes off when i go in and secondly i am very quiet when i'm in there that's not a place to take a selfie that's not a place to make a cell phone call and say guess where i am you know that's a, a place that i approach maybe more than I should, with reverence, but certainly with respect. You know, even though it's not his locker anymore, he hasn't dressed there for 40 years, obviously, it's still a very important tribute to Munson, and it still should be treated with respect. But that's the impression also, I imagine, that you get from players who were there pre-2009 when it was literally an empty space. I mean, this was a revered space in that room. Yes, yes. It's known that, of course, Derek Jeter was very protective of that space. Uh, He understood who Thurman was. He understood Thurman's legacy, that he was a very important part of carrying on. And, and, you know, he recognized that's not a space to use for storage. That's not a place to sit down and, you know, take photos in. That's not a place to treat with anything less than the utmost respect. So, you know, to be able to to continue that legacy here in in the museum, that's very important, I think. Yeah, I know as a, uh, a young sports writer coming up, you know, John and I both used to work for MLB mm-hmm. in their publications department, and we would go to the 
local ballparks in, in Queens and in the Bronx. And, you know, that first time walking into the Yankees clubhouse, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a little overwhelming, especially oh, for yes. a, a guy like me who grew up in New Jersey and, you know, rooting for the Yankees. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was there as, to do a job and, you know, I, I was professional. But when you get to that corner at the end of the row right. and you see that empty locker there, you just stop in your tracks and it's so different from any other place, too. I mean, I mentioned in the story, you would go there in September, and you would have minor leaguers sharing lockers because that room was just way too small. Right, it was. <laughs> and yet, here was a space not to be touched, and mm-hmm. you know, you had to wrestle with it because mm-hmm. of that. You know, you had to see this completely overfilled room, and it made you ask, what is this scar that's in the middle of this room? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the story is that, you know, Luke Kuza boxes everything up and sends it to Diana, and they kind of... George Steinbrenner basically tried to freeze everything in time from that moment in the right. sense that, you know, 15 was taken out of service immediately throughout the organization. And I, and, I, and I get the impression, you know, while it took 13 months for the Monument Park ceremony, there was just this sense that we have to figure out what to do with this stuff. And maybe the right answer eventually became we're going to do nothing with this mm-hmm. thing. And man, just all this not four years, it was 30 years later when it was there. It was such an effective memorial that's hard to express just ignites at the emotion when you see it. And I couldn't even imagine, you know, being a player and seeing it, you know, Don Mattingly told me coming up in 82, mm-hmm. it just makes you ask like, what would it be like to know this guy? Because you right. see that thing there and you have to wrestle with it. So August 2nd marks the 40th anniversary of, of Thurman's passing. Yes, um, correct. What do you expect the, the scene in the museum and at the ballpark will be like that day? Will it be, different than than other days at this at the stadium this season i think it'll be an especially emotionally charged crowd many people there may not necessarily be there to honor munson which is the case for any special event but i do think there are going to be a lot of people there who have especially poignant memories of munson so i i I anticipate that game being especially emotionally charged i think uh, people will be very nostalgic for thurman and i definitely expect more visitors than usual inside the museum and especially those coming to stop by thurman's locker and uh, and perhaps share a memory while they're there you know i'm wondering i know that this isn't your part of the store necessarily and maybe you're not supposed to weigh in on something like this <laughs> go ahead is thurman a hall of famer I wrestled with that question. I think he certainly had the attributes of a Hall of Famer. I think his career was certainly the caliber of a Hall of Famer's career. I don't know that it was necessarily long enough. I feel like Thurman was right at the very end of the prime of his career uh, when he did pass away. I think if he had had a few more years where maybe he could have added to his statistics, I think he potentially could have had a much greater chance of being elected to the Hall of Fame. But I, as it stands right now, I don't know that Thurman has come close to Hall of Fame induction, and I don't know if his statistics necessarily merit Hall of Fame induction. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean that he's not deserving. Uh, if he were to be elected to the Hall, I would certainly celebrate and say it's deserved. But I just, I, I don't know that his numbers are quite there to necessarily merit Hall of Fame induction. It's fair. You know, it's hard. Uh, you, you wonder. Yes, it is. You know, where what what you draw the line as? You know, right. do, do you say? His career, statistically, while he was playing, right. it's certainly good enough. You know, I think he has a more compelling case than, say, Don Mattingly in that regard. Yes. You, people like to compare that to of the longevity of the injuries and things like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you figure, I don't want to say league average necessarily, because you're right. not like talking about a Hall of Famer that way, but mm-hmm. 
you know, if you figure a couple of good years, two more right. good years, is that enough? Is it one more good year? Right. That's enough. And once you're saying that, kind of aren't we splitting hairs here? Right. I had never fully wrestled with that until, you know, these last few months getting just deep into the weeds of Thurman and his career. And right. I go back and forth now. Honestly, I do. I, I'm not sure. You know, I spoke to the people who are running the campaign right now for him, sure. you mm-hmm. know, such as it is uh, sure. for the committee that I think is supposed to put together a nominee list at the end of this year. They have the stats behind them. They make the, the these are well curated arguments, obviously, sure. but it's it's hard. It's compelling, right. but I don't know. I never right. thought about him that way until I was doing this. And just building on what I said there, John, you know, I'm I'm I guess I kind of embody that sort of on the fence feeling where you, you would like to see him be a Hall of Famer, but I don't know that necessarily the the support is there or the you know statistics, the career statistics, especially in comparison with some of his contemporaries. This I do know is that Thurman was under contract through the 1981 season. Whether he would have completed that contract, if he would have possibly retired sooner, switched to another position, been traded to another organization, you know, these are what-if questions that we can ask forever, which of course we don't have answers for, but I am confident that if he had played through the end of that contract in 1981, perhaps even longer, that his statistics certainly would have been improved, and I think he would have stood much better potential to be elected to the Hall of Fame had he been able to complete that contract. But of course, as with everything else with Thurman, it's it's you know, a lot of questions that we'll never have answers to. It's going to be, a, like you said, an emotionally charged day here on August 2nd, for mm-hmm. sure. Yes. Um, we'll have a, a special commemorative cover on of Yankees Magazine on sale that day only, remembering Thurman Munson. Really special cover, in my opinion. I think a lot of fans, I think, will really appreciate it. And uh, inside... The August issue, all month long, John, great story. It's called Carry That Weight. I think it really is a unique perspective on, on Thurman's legacy, looking back 40 years later. Yeah, Brian, thanks so much for joining us here today. This was great. Pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. So thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Yankees Magazine podcast. In addition to the three stories that we talked about today, you can find all of it by going to a newsstand and picking up the August issue of Yankees Magazine, which, as Nate mentioned, is on sale August 2nd with a special cover for Thurman Munson starting August 3rd. We'll have the regular August cover with Mariano Rivera on the cover from Cooperstown. Check us out, yankees.com magazine. We have all of our long-form content from this month, which spans the globe from London to Cooperstown to the Bronx to Canton. So make sure you check us out there. Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. Subscribe, rate, review, listen to us, tell your friends about our podcast, listen to it while you're walking through the Yankees, New York Yankees Museum presented by Bank of America. You can go to yankees.com slash podcast or any of your favorite podcast sites to do that. And of course, email us, letters at yankees.com, podcast at yankees.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, 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 subscribe to Yankees Magazine, yankees.com slash publications. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks. Have a great day. Bye now. Hi, this is Aaron Hicks. For more stories like this one, subscribe by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS. The MLB Ballpark app will complete your next visit to Yankee Stadium. Buy and manage game tickets, redeem special check-in offers, access exclusive content, and much more. Download the MLB Ballpark app today by visiting yankees.com backslash ballpark app.
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.